Hey, y'all. Did you guys have a good week? Mild week? Terrible week? Probably some mix of all three of those, right? That's okay. Whatever kind of week you had, I'm really glad we're here tonight together. Um, I was thinking this morning about, uh, about Peter Pan, the Disney classic version. What? I'm allowed to think about Peter Pan. Uh, the Disney classic Peter Pan, not like any of the other versions, not Return to Neverland, not any of the fairy mo- or the pixie movies, like, like OG Peter Pan. And I was thinking about the scene in the film where Tiger Lily is being held captive in Skull Rock by Captain Hook and Mr. Smee. Does that ring any bells? Is that like in your head already? The mental picture's there. Okay, right crowd. Um, and, Captain's, and Captain Hook goes away and leaves Smee to, uh, to watch over Tiger Lily and ensure that she doesn't go anywhere. And then in that moment, Peter Pan begins to do a vocal impersonation of Captain Hook, right? And it's like, like, uh, like eerily crazy how good Peter Pan is at doing Captain Hook's accent. And, and, and he tells Smee to let Tiger Lily go free. And so he begins to set Tiger Lily free. And he's like, okay, got to take her to the boat. Like he's getting ready to go. And then Hook's like, what are you doing? And he starts shouting. And he's like, I was listening to what you said. You said, take her, take her, set her free. And, and then Peter Pan does his, uh, his impersonation again and says, no, set her free. And, and Smee's like kind of wavering back and forth. Like, okay, which voice am I supposed to listen to? See, you have... You have two voices that sound eerily the same and one is trying to deceive and manipulate him, even though it happened to be the hero, Peter, in that moment. And you have the, another voice that's the exact same voice who uh, is the voice of the one who has continually mocked him and abused him, like just awful, right? The way that Hook treats Smee. And if you're Smee, don't you think like you're pretty right to have like, uh, like have some trust issues, right? Like, like he has been just so terribly handled. And in that moment, he's trying to figure out who is giving me the actual order. Who's telling me the truth? Who has the authority to tell me what to do? Now, I recently came across this quote from a research magazine uh, that was writing about discourse and truth. And I thought this, this quote was fascinating. I'll read it twice. It said, truth is a function of trust and pertains to the authority of the source. I'll read that again. Truth is a function of trust. That makes sense that both words start with the same three letters, right? Truth is a function of trust. That that our understanding of truth is born out of a space of trust and it pertains, it is related directly to the authority of the source. Now, I think that's super helpful and enlightening because in our cultural moment, in our context, which actually even beyond the current cultural moment that's kind of went back over the last 40 years or so, like think since the Vietnam War, there's this been continual erosion of trust in the systems and institutions in our culture. Uh, and that is only furthered in recent years. I mean, just think about the pandemic and where, wherever you landed on pandemic, all things pandemic, what we was so abundantly clear was trust was being eroded in every which direction. That Medical experts were suspect, politicians were suspect, and it got so bad that their authority made them ultimately look less trustworthy. Isn't that fascinating? Hence why when a lot of people were talking about the pandemic, we were like, well, I saw somebody on TikTok talking about this and like they knew their stuff. They're on TikTok, you know? And, and all of a sudden that's, that's authoritative. 
even though, do they have the degrees? Do they have official office? No, they have a, a channel that they created a few weeks ago, right? Like, and, and we've seen failure in so many other systems and institutions. We have seen it um, within, within the church. We have seen it in social media. We've seen it in so many different aspects of life. And we have seen trust continue to be eroded. So if all the places sound a lot like Captain Hook, where do we put our, our trust? Well, I'd imagine that you probably find yourself to be fairly trustworthy. I'd imagine you typically agree with yourself on most issues. <laughs> you feel justified by your, your thinking, your, your worldview, your emotions. You're like, yeah, great point. Um, like, like, you're like, yeah, that's right on. So it kind of makes sense how we as a culture can get to the place where we are at today, which has been labeled by experts as a post-truth culture. Now, I know I said the experts said that, which means that's even probably suspect in and of itself. But if we were me finally throwing off the shackles of the corrupt authority of Hook, then we become our own authority. I get to decide who I am, what my destiny holds, how I get to view the world around me. My truth, my understanding of what is true becomes the most important truth to me. And see, when everyone and everything else has failed, or at least it seems that way, I can count on one person, me. So we each become a silo of our own truth, our own identities. But see, there's some questions that I don't hear asked within the world around us. That I think would be probably pretty helpful if we were asking. What if we weren't created for this kind of independence? What if we weren't created to have our own truth? What if we were created for an interdependent existence? Even further, let's take it a step further. What if I'm also not nearly as trustworthy as I think? What if I'm just another poor version of authority? What if the problem isn't just someone else, but the human condition to try to define good and evil on our own terms? And to counter that, what if there is actual authority? What if there is objective truth, truth that is not intrinsic, but external, objective and what if there is one who truly is worthy to rule and to reign, to define good and evil on his terms, and by definition is the truth? How should that recalibrate our hearts and our minds? Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy. If you have one of the scripture journals, uh, feel free to open it up and take your notes along with it. And um, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3 tonight. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy, his beloved disciple, who has now been called to shepherd the church in Ephesus, which is his beloved church. And he writes and starts it this way, verse three and four. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So 
what we've covered over the last two weeks as we've kind of begin to dig, dig into this, this letter is that this is a highly relational letter that is written from Paul, the apostle, to his beloved disciple who is shepherding his beloved church. So it's highly relational. All of this has to be read within the context of deep love and relationships. Now, to further that, last week when Brady was up here, he brought clarity onto verse five, this concept that this entire letter is meant to focus Timothy and by extension, the entire church to the aim, the true aim, the true target, the true goal, love. That every word in this letter is meant to be the be viewed through the filter of love. What is the most loving thing? How do they point people to love? Now tonight, we're gonna zoom in a little bit out from just verse five and give some context into where that was coming from. So, so far, what we just read in verse three and four is Paul is on his, was on his way to Macedonia and decides to leave Timothy in Ephesus to shepherd this church in the midst of some difficult realities. There were some individuals who were doing a lot of foolish teaching. And so he was sent there to shepherd this church, to correct those who need to be corrected and to bring life, light and freedom back into the life of this church. Now, they had this difficult situation where these false teachers had been spouting all sorts of different truths And by extension, adding to what God had already revealed. They had been adding to the law and by extension, the gospel. Now, when I say the law, what I I mean by that is simply God's wisdom, his teaching, and specifically his commands. See, it's it's in and through the law that we discover what God desires for us to see as good and evil. What he articulates is the way that humans are created to flourish in life, in relationship with him, and in relationship with one another. Now, you can question all day whether or not he has the authority to do that, if you want. But that's the focus and the scope of the law. See, the law is compromised of God's commands within the Old Testament. And some of those were ceremonial. All were contextually relevant. And all of them had underlying principles that undergird each and every one of them that were meant to help them see what is God's desire, not just in this one situation, but in every situation of life. So that they would be drawn into greater understanding, not only of life, not even of himself, but of God's character. So we find the fullness of God's law in the person of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus does a lot of really crazy stuff. He, he, he does this one thing. He continually raises the bar on these, these ancient laws. Like, I think people are looking for him to kind of like just brush those ones away, but then you'd be like, you know how the law says not, not to murder? Yeah, you commit murder in your heart if you hate. You're like, ah, Man, I, I've never, I've, I've never like killed anyone, but like, really? That's hard stuff. And Jesus continued to do that, to say, it's not just about surface level obedience, but obedience to the law out of a submitted and surrendered heart. Now, that's not easy. In fact, Jesus would even go on to say that on our own, it's actually impossible. We would need him for even that. Which leads us to the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's the purity of truth that Jesus came into our world to reveal to us God's heart that while we were consistently breaking and living in bondage apart from God, unable to fulfill the commands of the law, he desired us. 
He sent Jesus to redeem and restore us back to life in his forever family so that we could rule and reign with him for out, throughout eternity in his kingdom. And he accomplished this through the, through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, taking all of our brokenness on himself, our sinfulness on himself, dying in our place so that we can live. You probably heard this before, right? Does that hit you as good news? Does it? I, so easily it can become routine. Jesus died so that we could live. We don't earn it. You don't impress God. We receive it by faith and trust that our, that our sinfulness has been buried with Jesus. And what comes out of the tomb with Jesus is resurrected life, renewed and meant to continually grow and discover what does it mean to live in intimacy with him and simultaneously become more like him. The gospel. And see, these, these false teachers, they were adding to the law and to the gospel. Now, I don't know. I and mean, he's talking about myths and endless genealogies. And you might read that and go, oh, oh, okay, well, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? I mean, doesn't that feel like Paul's being a little harsh here? Shouldn't they be able to, I mean, think about in our world, shouldn't they be able to teach whatever they want? I mean, people are free to listen or not. Why does it really matter? Why does it matter what they're teaching? Is Paul just making a bigger deal of this than it needs to be? you know, sending this whole Timothy off on this escapade. Have you ever read fan fiction or watched like a fan reproduction of like your favorite series? Okay, okay, cool. Uh, I find them to be pretty compelling sometimes. Um, I've been listening to a podcast series recently called X-Men, the audio drama. I like it. Um, but what they make clear on every episode is that it is not affiliated or licensed by Marvel, Disney, or Fox. Every time. Now, there's clearly legal reasons for that, right? Like, see, what makes it fan fiction is they don't have the official authority to make it. So it's not canon. So when you read, watch, or listen to fan fiction, you understand this is not officially canon. It's not officially that thing. And so you can enjoy it, but you know at the end of the day, it's not made with authority. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, X-Men, the animated series, fiction. X-Men, the, the, the movies from the early 2000s, fiction. The prequels, fiction. Um, the comic book series, fiction. X-Men, the audio drama, fiction. There, none of them actually happened. There are, to my knowledge, no mutants named Wolverine on planet Earth at this moment. At least not in this particular part of the multiverse, right? Um, it's all fiction. But yet, even with fiction, authority seems to matter. Isn't that interesting? So now let's look at what these false teachers are doing in Ephesus. See, they're not just bringing fan fiction to fiction. They're bringing fan fiction to the scriptures. And that's a no-go. See, they're teaching myths and endless genealogies. In other words, they're adding fan fiction to the Bible. Not cool, dude. See, this, this wasn't new. In fact, this was actually uh, a custom within the ancient, um, the ancient Jewish world where they would take biblical characters and they would start adding new stories uh, to their mythos. But they weren't within the scriptures. They were myths. 
For example, one of my favorite one of my favorite myths is uh, of the prophet Daniel. Uh, you know, due to hung out with some lions in a pit overnight, it's really cool. Okay, that story is in the scriptures. There's another story in a in, in a in a a book called the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, there's a story of what's called Daniel and the dragon. And what happens is that Daniel is in Babylon in captivity. And there is this dragon, which if you read the description, it sounds a lot like a brachiosaur or something like that to me, long neck with a big head. Okay. And they're worshiping as a deity. And, and he goes, I, I can kill your God. And so he gets uh, like pitch and tar and hay, and he feeds it to the God. And because it's a brachiosaur type thing and it has a long skinny neck, it stops breathing, falls over and dies. Daniel kills a God. That's a cool story, right? I love that story. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> the story doesn't carry authority. I, is it true? I, I don't know. I have no idea if it's true. Maybe it was, I don't know. But it's not in the scriptures. It doesn't carry authority. Yet what these false teachers are doing is they're adding authority to words that did not come from God. And that's a big deal. They are leading to unhelpful speculations focusing on things like genealogies. And ultimately, according to what Paul writes, is they are teaching different doctrine. We go on in chapter four. We'll get to this in, in the weeks and months ahead. But in chapter four, we find out that these same false teachers are even adding rules on top of the law. They are proclaiming a bunch of nonsense from authoritative positions saying that you cannot be saved if you, uh, if you get married or if you eat certain foods. Even though God has already revealed to the church that neither of these realities are required to follow Jesus. So according to what Paul is saying, and something that is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures, is I don't have the authority. You don't have the authority. We don't have the authority to add commands with the authority of God. I don't have the authority to find good and evil based on my own wisdom. I don't have it. If I'm up here and I'm teaching something and it is not aligned with the scriptures, one of us is wrong and it's not the scriptures. Now, each of us needs to learn how to discern what God says is good and evil and figure out what does that mean and what does that look like in my life today? Because the scriptures don't give us a clear cut answer on literally every decision we'll ever make in life. But that doesn't mean the scriptures have nothing to say about every reality in your life. In fact, what you get in the scriptures is you get principles that undergird each command, each law, each desire of God. And within that principle, we discover something about God's character and his desire for humanity to flourish and he wants us to live in those. He wants us to learn with him. In fact, he wants us to learn so badly that he gives us the spirit of God within us to, to be our counselor, to be our guide, to lead us into righteousness and truth. He does not lead us into confusion and chaos, but righteousness and truth. So this is a part of what it means to follow after Jesus. But see, this is the difference between following Jesus in our everyday life or following my own wisdom with like an appetizer of Jesus in my everyday life. See, I'm not God. I'm not my own king. See, when we come to follow after Jesus, this is the profession that we are making. That there is one who has wisdom and it's not me. 
That there is one who defines good and evil and it's not me. There is one who carries authority and it's not me. That he is king over everything, including me. Which means we trust his ways over our own, his commands, his desires, his beliefs, his opinions over our own. And that's hard, right? I mean, do you even find that particularly easy? No, right? Like this is a part of the journey. And then Paul, verse five says this, where we were at last week. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As we were talking about last week, what is so sad about these false teachers is that they set their sights on the wrong target. They lost aim of love from a pure heart. And they end up in a realm filled with nonsense and pride and arrogance and deceit. Different doctrine, different law, different gospel. Now, this is a picture of Florida's finest tap water. So you know it tastes like sulfur. This is crystal light specifically blackberry lemonade, okay? Now, at what point does it stop just being water and become something else? The answer is the moment its purity is affected. It becomes something else. Now it's lemonade. You can have some. It probably still tastes like sulfur, but... (laughs) See, the purity of the water is affected and it becomes a different type of drink a different something. And that's why what the false teachers were doing was such a big deal. Because what they were doing is they were affecting the purity of the gospel. They, were, they, they had lost the aim of love and were no longer coming out of a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. So whether they, they started off in the right vein or not, they are adding to the gospel because they're adding to the law, because they're adding to what God said. And by doing either of these realities, they're crafting an entirely other gospel. And see, that's what's so important that we understand and acknowledge is that for, for you or for me, for every one of us, we have the propensity to create our own good news. A good news that fits in with our preconceived notions, that meets our desires, our wants, the way that we think. It's not just the the crazies out there. It's not just these false teachers in here. It's each and every one of us in our hearts because we have desires in our hearts that we want to be met apart from God. This is why it's so important that that we are reminding ourselves with the beautiful purity and truth of the gospel because it can easily become to be routine. And then we start looking to what can be added to spice it up. Right? There are those who add uh, beliefs that, that God only wants for you to always be healed and only wants for you to have unlimited amounts of wealth or whatever if you just have enough faith. That's a different gospel. There are those who believe that you can meld your political and social ideologies into your faith and, and that is, makes it even better. And that's a different gospel. There is any time that we are tempted to add anything into the gospel, we make it something else. That's not meant to scare us. It's meant to help us to be aware that it's not just false teachers like these individuals who have that 
that ability, who have that propensity. But we have the opportunity to grow as we learn, which is what Paul is trying to do with these false teachers through Timothy. Verse six and seven. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what they want to do is they want to pull themselves up by a brutal combination of arrogance and ignorance. They're making confident assertions. And isn't that like Gaston's whole MO, like confident assertions, right? Uh, and he, this is the definition of arrogance when you make confident assertions. Now, arrogance is not a, a great quality to have, right? Um, when you talk to someone who is, who is speaking, or if you've ever, I'm sure you have, I have, speak with authoritative confidence, we are stepping into the realm of arrogance. But arrogance alone isn't nearly as dangerous as when it is paired with what Paul writes here, lacking understanding. Now this gets scary because that's ignorance. And when you have arrogant ignorance, I mean, now, now maybe you speak with arrogant ignorance from some time or another, but me never, right? I, now I have realized though, in, in my life, how easy it is for me to step towards that space. Hence why Timothy is there in the first place. Because when you're arrogant and at least you're willing to listen, that's one thing. But when you're arrogant and you're ignorant, you're typically not even going to listen to anybody else who has anything else to say that might conflict with it because by definition, you're ignorant. So you ignore them. So Paul sends Timothy to this church with a big task. Now I want to fast forward to verse 18 really quick. We're going to hit verse 18 through 20. Where he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwrecks of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Easy stuff, right? And that sounds pretty severe. Hand it over to Satan. Like that's not easy. And again, with, with our modern sensibilities, like we hear that and we go, no, don't do that. No, couldn't be that bad, right? But you see, we cannot forget Paul's aim is love. His aim is love. His desire is that these these individuals, even Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he mentioned specifically, would realize that they have stepped away from the purity of the gospel. And so what he's reminding Timothy first of, though, is not that Hymenaeus and Alexander are the enemies. Instead, what does he say? This is a spiritual war. There's spiritual warfare happening. These false teachers are not the enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. And he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And here's the thing about Satan that is just infuriating. He doesn't have a single creative outlet within him. He's not creative. He is only manipulative. And see, the enemy has been manipulating these false teachers, playing on their insecurities and overconfidences to draw them into arrogant ignorance, away from a heart focused on love. 
to the point where these individuals are trying to play God and define good and bad on their own terms. And they didn't even have a clue of how damaging this was to their own souls and to the life of their community around them. So it seems so drastic for Paul to remove them from the fellowship of the biblical community and to, as he puts it, hand them over to Satan. Like, sounds like a big deal. But this is not, read it. This is, doesn't sound like Paul is talking about punishment. He is simply removing the safety net of community around them and allowing them to experience the brutality of where their path leads. See, if Paul refused to allow them the space to see just exactly how dark their path would lead, they would stay in arrogant ignorance, filling the, themselves and the community around them with division and bitterness. But what Paul desires for them is to experience true life, flourishing. Now, here's what's kind of crazy. Uh, many scholars believe that Hymenaeus and Alexander, the two dudes that are mentioned here, were actually former elders within the church in Ephesus. They were pastors. Individuals called to shepherd this church. Oftentimes we can see um, the epic falling out of famous Christians and pastors. Epic falls, right? Sinful failures. Uh, they begin to teach heresy like these individuals. And we can look down at them and go, what knuckleheads? Like, are you kidding me? You guys are the worst. But do we take the time to humbly realize that even they aren't the enemy? But we have an enemy who wants to play on my and your insecurities and overconfidences and draw you and me and them and one another away from Jesus and away from biblical community. So what we need to continually do is draw near to Jesus and submit our thoughts and desires and our lives continually to him, realizing that he is God and I am not. That he knows what is truly good when I think I know better. Now here's where this gets even better though. God is not just a trustworthy authority, although he is that. He also defines life, light, and freedom. Isn't that good? God is a really, really good dad. And in the midst of a dark world, when we were enemies against him, he's like, yeah, those ones. His desire is that we would experience his divine biblical love and begin to radiate it in purity to the world around us. Because you see, none of us are better or worse than the most hypocritical person who calls himself a Christian. But each of us can and will be deceived by the enemy when we listen to the whisper, the same whisper in the garden. God doesn't have your best in mind. He's keeping the power for himself. He's not good authority. You could be authority. You could define good and bad. You could get all the knowledge with none of the relationship. That same whisper. Again, like I said, Satan isn't creative. He's doing the same trick for the last X amount of years, right? Like he, he doesn't have a lot of creativity about him. But yet it plays on my heart and on my mind. So we need to keep the purity of the gospel 
in our individual journeys with Jesus and fight to keep the purity of the gospel as we do life together in discipleship journeys together. See, it's not about correcting or proving that we are right or, or being better than. It's about the aim of love and how the truth brings us to love, how grace brings us to love, that these realities remind us of our desperate need to live as children of the light, untainted by the false truths of the world and the false truths that our sinful desires go after. See, this is what I need you for. I need you to remind me of this. Especially when my heart wants to go on my own way, I need it. I need to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel. I need to be reminded that I know the one who defines good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, and it's not me. Because you see, if you follow Jesus, you are not your own. You belong to another. You don't have the rights over you anymore. He does. And he's a really good king. In fact, he defines goodness. Kindness, gentleness, joy, all of it, hope. See, ultimately our obedience and acknowledgement of him is king. It's not meant to produce misery within us. It's not that he wants to be the perpetual killjoy, so you better submit. It's that he has in mind unending delight, intimacy, love, and overwhelming joy. This is literally why we exist. To glorify him and enjoy him forever. And what he desires is to draw us near as we listen to the purity and beauty of his voice as he wraps us in his fatherly arms and affections to experience life with him individually and together. So none of this, none of what Paul's writing here should take us to the place of, that's it, I know 10 people to go correct right this second. Because it starts here. See, what we can be tempted towards is, all right, I'm gonna go prove every non-Christian wrong on every which issue. I'm gonna prove the authenticity of the scriptures and everything else. But that just reminds me of what um, Charles Spurgeon once wrote. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Like, like God's got this. <laughs> He's pretty good at it. He's been doing it a lot longer than my amount of years that I've been on planet earth, Right? But what each of us needs to ask first and foremost is not what do I do with other people? But first and foremost, what's going on in my heart? Where am I tempted to add something to the purity of the gospel? Where am I tempted to look for pleasure, joy, apart from him, to do things my way? Because I call that a Monday typically for me. But by his grace, I get to journey with Jesus, abiding with him, becoming more like him. So to journey with one another, we get to help one another on the journey where we have those spaces of ignorance, where we have those spaces in our own hearts, in our own lives. We have the opportunity to walk alongside one another. What a gift. I don't deserve it. I don't have any deserving within me to walk alongside any of you. Yeah, this is what God calls us into in the family. And lastly and finally, Jesus did not say that the world will know his followers by how right we are, but by how we love one another. 
So let's love one another in grace and truth. Because truth without grace is not love and grace without truth is not love. So that we can draw near to the one whom our affections were created for. I'm gonna invite the band to come on forward. And here's what I'd love for us to all do right now. I wanna just close your eyes for a minute. And I want to just give us a minute or two to just allow the truth of the gospel to seep into our souls tonight, that you would just pray whatever prayers of gratitude you've got on your your heart right now. If you have doubts, bring those. He can handle them. Whatever's going on, just talk with God about what's going on right now for you. Father, it's unbelievable that we get to be called sons and daughters. I pray that you would remind us of the beauty and purity of your love that we discover in the person of Jesus. I know that's so easy for my heart and I know for my friends here, theirs as well, to want things our own way. And that makes sense because we're not on the other side of eternity yet. We're not in the kingdom. When all the death and destruction and chaos and sinfulness and, and, and disease and famine and war and, and all the ugliness is handled. But that day's coming. The king will return. And when he does, he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will remove every blemish from our hearts. And he will draw us near for eternity. So Lord, would you allow that moment to be on our hearts and on our minds on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? As we go through our days and we interact with coworkers and friends and family members and roommates, that we would remember that our aim is love. From pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Would you sweep us off our feet in your love, Lord? Yes, God. Pray right now for anyone in this space who doesn't know where they stand with Jesus. All this stuff sounds weird or clunky or number of things. Or maybe it's compelling. And Lord, if it's compelling, then I already give you praise because it sounds like your spirit's already on the move. So I pray right now for my friends here tonight who don't know Jesus, who've never surrendered their life to him, that you would do a work in them even now, reminding them of your kindness and goodness, of the unending measure of your love. We need you, Lord. You're good and you're kind. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.